Save the date for the 12th of September. Join our webinar on digital transformation in manufacturing. We are exploring how IoT, AI and smart factories are reshaping our sector. Hear from industry leaders like Airbus, Rolls-Royce and Heriot Watt University. This is a must attend for professionals and decision makers in manufacturing. So register now at resources.red-fern.co.uk slash webinar. That's resources.red-fern.co.uk slash webinar. The link is also in the description. I had a fascinating conversation this week with William Wilson, the CEO of Siemens Mobility UK. We talked about how the railways have evolved, the challenges facing modernization and new investments in schemes that will bring jobs to less well-served parts of the UK. From Redfern Media, this is Remake Manufacturing. My guest this week is William Wilson, CEO of Siemens Mobility UK, which designs and manufactures trains and also employs over 5,000 people across the UK. Will's been in the industry for over 20 years and leads innovation in mobility and sustainability. He's passionate about the state of UK manufacturing, as well as attracting and retaining top talent to the industry. So Will, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So as CEO of Siemens Mobility, what are the most significant changes happening in the world that impact the way you think about the future of mobility and trains in particular? Well, obviously, trains in particular are all about transporting people. And there are a number of factors that are really influencing the market as we stand today. I mean, short term, we have COVID, and that has really taken a lot of people out of all forms of transport, including trains. And it's also pushing a lot of people into cars rather than using public transportation. But then we have bigger, wider issues such as sustainability, the price of fuel, the ability to actually get to public transport when it's much easier to use your private car to go from A to B instead of getting a bus to go to catch a train. And of course, the cost as well. So a huge number of variables that can actually affect the different markets that we play in. And how would you say the railways have evolved over the last 20 years in this country, especially in terms of technology, investment, infrastructure, safety, those kind of areas? It's been transformed. Hopefully, people don't notice it because it's all behind the scenes. But if I think back to when I was a child in the 1970s, trains were unreliable. They were not used because you didn't know whether they would break down and whether you would get from A to B. And sometimes it's quicker, actually, to take alternative forms. Today, you have modern intercity trains across much of Europe, which is the same time to actually get from A to B as it is to take a plane. If you take a Eurostar from London today, you can get there in about two and a half hours, including the check-in time. And by the time you've gone through an airport, flown, and then got in from the airport into Gardenau, it actually takes longer. With all of the challenges that you mentioned, uh, how do you stay on top of uh, the, the trains as, in your role as CEO? And, and what are you most proud of achieving so far? Well, my business, it's all about people. Every business is. So making sure that we have the work, right workforce, that they are focused at, in a market, in our products, making the most reliable goods we possibly can. Investing in them. You know, the expectation is for a minimum of 16 hours training per person across my 5,000 wide workforce, whether they're working on the shop floor or in my senior management team. I also have to follow the market. Here in the UK, the progressive policies that the government are putting forward 
forming a new integrated railway where the railway is viewed as a system with one customer called the Great British Railway is a different step forwards. But then, of course, it's about actually having the right products. And I'm really keen on digitization and actually forming those uh, solutions here in the UK and manufacturing them here in the UK with inward investment with new manufacturing facilities and upgrading what we have already. And let's take one specific example. Uh, you've recently invested $200 million in a new train facility in Goul. Can you tell us more about that? What was the thinking and, and how did it come to fruition? Well, I was there yesterday, actually, and it's three quarters built. It's quite amazing the, the speed that the UK construction has happened. But why are we building in the UK? Well, the UK is a really significant global market. And being part of the global Siemens mobility, I represent over 10% of the whole market around the globe. And one of the missing factors we had was that trains were 100% manufactured in Germany or Austria. And not only did we not quite have enough capacity, but we also wanted to localize in order to put something back into the, the UK, you know, PLC, so to speak, uh, you know, pay taxes in this country. Plus, we have a really good workforce of engineers, of entry-level talent in this area that we've chosen, which is actually in Goul in the East Riding of Yorkshire. In more recent times, this has fitted into the government's levelling up agenda. You know, we are building in a deprived part of the, the you know, the north-east, I think it technically is. Um, but it's got a really, really good workforce. We know the area very well as Siemens overall. A few years ago, we built a, a wind blade factory in Hull which was pioneering in a really rundown part of the docks where we actually had to dredge out the, the Humber in order to get our barges in and out. This has been a resounding success and it's been a success by the people that are in there and the way that we can actually bring them up, train them up and they've been a very reliable and dedicated workforce since. So a lot of logistics to deal with there. Indeed, but at Google we're doing more than just manufacturing. My vision is actually to have a hub for rail development as well as manufacture. We've teamed up with the University of Birmingham and other universities, and we are founder members of a rail-related um, coalition of universities called Ukraine. We also have, with the Local Enterprise Partnership, um, developed a dedicated area for small and medium enterprises to co-locate with us on the site. And this actually will be the first building that should be open. They were fitting the carpets yesterday, and so it's due to open after Easter. And that will be, you know, bringing small, clean-thinking organisations to us, the big manufacturer, so that we can take those on board and, you know, meet over cups of coffee in the shared restaurants and so forth. We're also looking at how we support the local colleges, rail-related, but also Hull University, York University, Huddersfield, Sheffield, and, and other areas, and we're aligned with Doncaster College, which has recently absorbed uh, the Gould College and other higher education. And of course, we're starting early, going into the local schools with STEM activities. And we seem to be actually having a really positive influence on the local community. But when you're knitted into the community like that, it's obviously a, a great way to to take on these jobs. But how do you how do you please all the people all the time? So many voices involved. It's a busy job. I have a dedicated head of localization, we call him, um, a, a very strong character who actually did our development in Hull. So he knew an awful lot of the, the local people already, which was part of the reason that we asked him to, to lead our Google project. We have huge backing from the local MP, Andrew Percy, and the local enterprise partnership have been very, very um, 
positive in, in helping us in many areas. What the town council tell me is that actually since we took our site and announced that we were building a high-tech production facility with associated R&D and education, the profile of the people that are inquiring and now actually locating in Google because it has excellent transport links has changed totally. Mm. Traditionally, it was a warehousing logistics hub uh, with low skill levels and large distribution areas. But we're seeing more blue chip companies moving in and there are a lot of inquiries across the board uh, that they're dealing with. And we've seen housing developers come in over the last two years. They've built 900 homes, which are already being occupied very close to our site. And there are further plans to move forwards. And then the further thing that we did, uh, which I personally was quite involved with, was we petitioned very hard for the Humber to become a free port, including Ghoul. And of course, that was announced last year, which will further benefit um, both sides of the Humber and all the development of industry, high-tech industry that we can see there. Remake Manufacturing is brought to you by Redfern Media, the digital agency for B2B manufacturers. We partner with B2B manufacturers to listen, think, create and innovate. To find out more, head over to remakemanufacturing.com and sign up to the podcast, plus manufacturing marketing and technology insights. Now, back to the show. Great stuff. So let, let's move on to sustainability, something very important to you. Um, the British government has a general target to reach net zero by 2050. Can you tell us your thoughts on how the railways can contribute to achieving that? Well, there are two elements to that. The first is we want a carbon-free railway, and I work with all the players in order to try and have a carbon-free railway by 2045 over the whole of the United Kingdom. The Scottish government are more aggressive. They want a carbon-free railway by 2040. And we're, as an industry, and myself as a supplier, we are rising very well to that challenge. So how are we doing it? Well, railways don't actually contribute that much carbon in consideration of what they transport, but they do produce a little bit of carbon. But electric railways, if we can have sustainable electricity on a much greater scale, are carbon neutral. So we're focusing very much on how we can extend the electrification of the UK's railways and how we can supply more efficient electric trains. But we're also looking at alternative technologies, battery-powered trains, hydrogen-powered trains, and indeed whether actually we can convert the big freight locomotives into electric or bimodes so that they're hauling their you know, very heavy weight of cargo under electricity for the majority of it, and then when it's non-electrified, they can use a, a diesel engine. So many different areas there. But then we're also working and petitioning quite hard with the government about policy, because to have a modal shift to come out of particularly diesel cars into um, a train and public transport, it requires an integrated transport system. We call it mobility as a service. So you should be able to buy a ticket that even books your taxi if you don't have a bus service that takes you to a railway station. And then at the other end, you could even come into central London and automatically have hired a bicycle if you want to you know, keep healthy um, or a taxi or a bus ticket. And it gives you uh, space on that train. It gives you the ability to um, you know, have a seamless journey without the hassle of going through different, different options. And it can also update you. you know, if your bus is late, you'll know that you don't need to leave your front door for another two minutes in the pouring rain to stand in that rain and little things like that. The final piece we're looking at, which is uh, not totally rail, is actually about what we do with freight. And picking up the concept of an electrified railway 
we're talking to government and other stakeholders about actually having electrified lanes and motorways. So you have electric trucks that are powered by pantographs with over, overhead wires instead of batteries, which means that they would be able to maintain the amount of weight that they're pulling at the moment instead of having an eight or 10 ton battery put onto that lorry and reducing its capacity. So lots and lots of things going on. Yeah, that all sounds amazing, lovely and logical, but it also sounds like a big challenge. What are going to be the biggest barriers stopping the manufacturing industry hitting their sustainability targets, do you think? It's a matter of timing. Um, We're here in 2022, and you might think that 2050 is a long way off. But in order to change manufacturing processes, in order to upgrade our premises, in order to even go away from... Heating factories with gas to electric or sustainable other fuel sources um, all takes time, it takes investment, and it needs to be built in. We need a strong economy in order to you know, really push the manufacturing sector and, and more inward investment so that you know, what I'm doing in Google is repeated across the country and we bring that manufacturing standard up to a much greater contributor into the economy than it is today. Obviously, distribution, warehousing, logistics, absolutely key as well. And the ability to export the free ports is a step in the right direction. But we need to actually have some you know, much stronger trade agreements in order to be able to export more seamlessly. Brexit's over and done with. There are challenges in many areas. But the biggest threat we have at the moment is actually the supply of electrical goods and components. And that, of course, can slow down our ability to output and therefore to grow as manufacturers. So it's quite a complicated model across you know, the whole of the manufacturing environment. But we need some, some strong policy and, and some strong help in some respects, whether it's through opening doors or actually you know, through subsidising small and medium enterprises to come up into the manufacturing area and keeping manufacturing in the UK, which obviously has not necessarily been the fashion over the last decades. I was going to say, do you feel like you're getting enough help? Is it, does the future look bright and rosy? I mean, I'm quite a big company, over a billion turnover, 5,000 employees, part of a big global group with a brand like Siemens. So I can knock on doors and I can, of course, talk to people. I work very closely with the CBI as to other parts of Siemens in the UK. We work very closely with the Department for Transport and you know, the Treasury in order to try and get policy that is inclusive, that benefits us, but also benefits the railway industry. We need competition. Competition is a great way to drive innovation, to drive things forwards. That coupled with something like a sustainability and carbon uh, neutral target of 2050 is pushing us forwards um, in many, many ways. But I think that, you know, it's a matter of focus. And if you're setting up um, manufacturing here, it's knowing how to actually get that help. Help can be given, but I'm not certain it's, it's as obvious in all regions as it has been um, for us following Hull into Google on the Humber Bank. Mm. So, I mean, you mentioned before that you, you, f- you think the business is all about people. Let's talk about that. Uh, skill shortages have been a big issue in the industry for a long time. Can you tell us what measures you've been working on and what else do we need to try to be more effective to solve that problem? Absolutely. Well, I have two halves of my business. One is about controlling railways, safety critical control of trains, and the other is about manufacturing and maintaining trains. If I look in the really technical side where we're doing complex signaling systems, the demographic, which is typical actually of the whole of the rail industry, means that over half of my workforce will be over the age of 50 within four years. 
And that means that I have a huge um, challenge, opportunity, um, but something that needs to be addressed now and that we've been addressing over the last 10 years. So we put in place measures such as actually setting up our own training academy in Northampton, the National Training Academy for Rail, which we run uh, along with NSAR, the, the Skills Authority. And there we're delivering about 90% of all the apprenticeships um, in the UK that are related to what we do. So maintenance of trains, also signaling installation and NEBOSH and other things like that. But it doesn't stop at the entry level. We obviously have the apprentices coming in, we have graduate schemes, but we have a returners uh, program. So if you've been out of work uh, for varying reasons for 10 or 15 years, we will evaluate where you could fit in had you been on a normal trajectory. We will give you specialized training and we bring a number of people in very successfully in, back into the industry that may have some core skills that we you know, really need or actually to just add to you know, the dynamics of the business. We're also, I was in the military for a while and I'm very keen on our military to rail program so that we're bringing you know, very skilled people, particularly out of the RAF, but also out of the army into the rail industry. And we sometimes will train up um, military to rail in our academy for others. And we almost club together as an industry when it comes to training. We're supportive, obviously, as I've mentioned, of you know, universities coming in. And we're looking at you know, that whole demographic of, of where we get our people from. And that's half of the story. But of course, the other half of the story is actually what we can do differently. The days of having big mechanical systems have gone and we're dealing with electronic systems and we're now moving from the idea of not actually having your typical signal on the side of the railway or traffic light if you like and actually not having any of that trackside architecture which means a you don't need to design it in but b you don't need to maintain it and you don't need to close the railway in order to dig it up and put the foundations in huge benefits for that and it means that we've gone to onboard signaling systems so you have a, a simplified terms a basic computer on your train that is controlling the train and it is receiving information via uh, radio from the computer that's controlling, uh, that is controlling all the train movements and combine that with all the sensors and digital systems that we manufacture and put on the trains today we know when components are going to fail we know actually you know when there is congestion ahead, so we can automatically slow the train down, instruct the driver to slow the train down, save power, save wear on the, the rail, and become a really digitized system. But of course, in order to design those electronic systems, we have a, a different skill set to the ones that we have for the big mechanical systems in the past. So we're now more looking at data scientists and how we can um, attract them into the industry. So as our demographic changes of our traditional railway people into our new generation of electronic people, we are heavily recruiting and, and heavily training. As you say, there's so much high-tech uh, stuff going on in the railways. It does counter that perception of the industry as a sort of dirty, you know, old-fashioned sort of heavy heavy way of doing things. So if that image can be pushed and uh, that can really help recruit a whole new generation who are sort of attracted by the high-tech modern world that you that you guys are pushing. Absolutely. And one of the things that we do really quite well, I think, is engage with our local communities. Because if we've got a railway depot, um, say, in the middle of a town, and I'm just thinking of Northampton, for instance, where we're right just on the edge of the town centre near the railway station, we know 
that the community is interested in what goes on there. And also, we also know that they may be interested in working there. So we have open days. We welcome them in. And I can remember being there and someone said to me, this is strange. You spend a long time cleaning it. And I said, well, <laughs> you know, we did clean it up a little bit, but not very much. He said, but where's all the oil and grease? But I said, these are electric trains. They're not like a steam locomotive or an old greasy diesel. And she had no comprehension that actually what we were working on was not what she imagined a train was like. Um, and similarly, when you sort of bring school trips in and, and things like that, and they sit in the cab and actually they say, wow, this is like an aeroplane. And getting people interested at that stage is, is one of the nicer sides of, of engaging and, and trying to get people interested in, in rail. Can you kind of outline your manufacturing footprint and, and how what the setup looks like in England? Absolutely. Um, we are a very old UK manufacturer. We've been manufacturing signaling equipment for over 170 years in Chippenham. Curiously, on Brunel's original railway, it was one of his original manufacturing facilities. That today is a factory that employs uh, in the region of 600 people, manufacturing predominantly electronic goods with some mechanical goods such as point machines. And it's very progressive in it having, you know, it's fed by its own R&D department um, in the digital revolution that we're seeing in the railways at the moment. But it's mirrored by another factory in Leicestershire at Ashby, where we do control systems and we do station management systems. Um, and when the new Elizabeth line opens, um, hopefully this late spring, uh, people will probably not notice what we call the station management system, but everything that's controlling all the power, the public announcements. And this is all manufactured here in the UK in our factory in, in Ashby. And a lot of the signaling system on the Elizabeth line has been done in our factory in Chippenham. We have a sister factory, which used to be part of uh, mobility up until very recently, but they've been spun off in, in order to grow a pool where we do all sorts of traffic systems. Um, some are liked, some are not liked. Enforcement systems such as traffic cameras, but also the congestion charge and the environmental zoning charges. Again, you know, making sure that when people drive into the centres of cities, which are very polluted, only non-polluting vehicles come through without having to pay, and we penalise those vehicles we want to keep out. But that's a very wide-ranging business affiliated with mine. And then last, and probably a huge investment, we're spending over $200 million, uh, in the East Riding of Yorkshire, building a train manufacturing facility in order to service the UK market for rolling stock. And what does the supply chain network look like as well for you guys? Supply chain is gigantic. We spend in our procurement department around 600 million a year on our supply chain. And that includes everything from labor, which is the biggest contributor, um, through to small electronic components. We have a very conscious and very successful policy of trying to procure from SMEs or small and medium enterprises where possible in order to grow the UK supply chain. Over 50% of that 600 million is UK supply chain and a further 20% of that will be um, procured by UK companies. So a major plowing back of our investment into the UK and of course being a manufacturer which is feeding a project business. We have a wider supply chain, actually, of subcontractors coming in to deliver our systems and to do civil engineering and all sorts of other benefits um, to the UK economy. 
So Will, as you reflect on two years as CEO, what trends have been most interesting to you in terms of the growth of the manufacturing sector? The biggest change I've seen in the last two years obviously has been driven by the government. It has been a slowdown in the ordering of rolling stock and then the railways being controlled by the Treasury and, of course, the announcement that uh, it won't be privatised but that we will have the whole of the railway under the Great British Railway. And that has a direct knock-on effect to us as a manufacturer. Our big investment in Ghoul, the 200 million train building facility, is predicated by a huge order that we have from London Underground for Deep Tube. The first fleet we're building at the moment is for Piccadilly Line, and these will start coming into service in about two years' time. And that London investment, which we're spending in building a facility in Yorkshire with uh, an ever-expanding UK supply chain, means that we're levelling up. So we're taking London money, investing it in Yorkshire, creating jobs in a deprived area of the north. And we actually decided to do that before the government announced their, their policy. So coincidence, but great to fit in. And I think that you know the government policy, they need to progress with what they started to do. And you know if we're going to be manufacturing, we need to manufacture in the right places. We need to invest in these areas like we are in Ghoul, like other areas have, have, have been invested in, but across the north where there's a very, very willing workforce. We've got a great supply chain. We have great backing. And it's just actually making sure that we have enough orders to feed that. So over the last two years, I've seen a huge change. I've seen a slowdown in the rolling stock side of things. But I've also seen um, a real push to actually do more for less, particularly on our infrastructure side, which fits in directly with our sustainability challenges, with our carbon reduction challenges. We want to get more trains over the same amount of railway um, in a safer manner than we do today, carrying you know the same number of passengers. But if you double the amount of services, it becomes really far better for people to have flexibility for whatever they want to do with that. And of course, the short-term effect of COVID and I hope it is short term, but I think with the, the current developments um, where people are not getting so seriously ill with the, the uh, pandemic uh, means that we've seen a, a huge slowdown in ridership. But one of the refreshing things and really good things is that we've been supported by government in order to continue the reform of the infrastructure and Piccadilly line trains are, haven't slipped at all because they really are required in order to regenerate the London economy as well as the North. Well, it's a chance as well, isn't it, to fix everything but just before everybody does come back and fingers crossed this pandemic is over soon and we can all get back to normal life. We'll end the show the same way we do every week by asking our guests to tell us the one invention that if it was never manufactured, your life would be unbearable. So what could you not live without? <laughs> Probably not a very good answer, but my coffee machine. I am reliant in order, you know, my first cup of coffee in the morning keeps me going for a couple of hours and I limit myself to a maximum of three in a day. But I like a nice, strong cup of espresso to wake me up and keep me going. And it, it, I just get a lot of pleasure out of that, particularly the stresses and the fun of running a big business. Great answer. All it leaves me to do now is say thanks to today's guest, Will Wilson. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being here. Subscribe to this podcast in all the usual places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon and Google Music. Thanks for listening to this edition of Remake Manufacturing. I'm your host, Stuart Black. See you next time.